Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good news. We've got two good martinis today, plus a crazy. But Jim, I should probably start off with a full-throated apology to the Chicago Bears, who yesterday, I said, would get thrashed by the Patriots last night. And, you know, as Chris Berman always says, that's why they play the games. And turns out the Bears put together a great game, which I'm sure really broke your heart as the uh, Patriots now limp into next week's game against your New York Jets. So, uh, you know, uh, three and four, you know, the season might still have a pulse yet for us. Greg, first of all, on the one hand, I'm thrilled. I always like seeing the Patriots lose. But the flip side is now there's pressure for this week for the Jets. If you guys can beat them, we sure (laughs) a second better beat them. And also, I'm just seeing a request from the Chicago Bears into the uh, Three Martini Lunch helpline. They're looking for receipts, Greg. They're keeping receipts. Well, yeah, I fully admit it. I didn't think they had a chance. I thought uh, the Patriots were turning things around, but not only did they not turn things around, now they've got a full-blown quarterback controversy. So you're welcome, Jim. You're welcome. All right, on to uh, our first good martini today. And uh, this has happened before with the oil industry raking the Biden administration over the coals, but uh, this time it's the Institute for Energy Research, which admittedly is a right-leaning organization, but they have had it uh, up to here, and I mean basically up to the top of their head, with the administration's uh, policies of releasing uh, fuel from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, in a very different way than previous administrations. And that's what they're pointing out in a recent uh, letter and statement. It says, while prior administrations have had SPR releases, They have been used to avert short-run price increases due to emergency circumstances, such as the price run-ups during the Persian Gulf War and immediately after Hurricane Katrina. Prior administrations viewed the domestic production of fossil fuels as a positive and necessary objective compared to Biden's climate policies that seek to end the use of fossil fuels. Even President Obama boasted about the benefit of U.S. energy production. Biden's policies, however, conflict with the administration's desperate attempts to avoid sharp increases in gasoline prices, at least that appears to be the case, prior to the midterm elections. Biden has imposed constraints on domestic oil production while begging Saudi Arabia for increases in output. Since the latter did not work, Biden released oil from the SPR several times to avoid the political jam that his anti-oil and gas policies created, leaving the reserve's inventory at a 40-year low. And while he is manipulating domestic gas and diesel prices by using the SPR, Biden wants to sue OPEC members for price manipulation. So, uh, Jim, we've also seen uh, in the last few days that uh, there's only a 25-day reserve of diesel, which is historically very, very low. It almost feels like this administration is kind of duct-taping the energy sector uh, to get to November 8th, and then everything's just going to go haywire once that happens. And by haywire, I mean a lot more expensive. But uh, what do you make of the energy industry finally getting fed up even more so, I guess, with President Biden here? Well, one, it's always good to see people from the industry just laying out, hey, look, here's the numbers. Here's what things are going. Here's how much we're taking out of the ground. Here's, by the way, don't forget refinery capacity. You can't just take it out of the ground and put it into your car. I think one of the things that the Biden administration, one of the reasons the Biden administration is in such trouble on this is that Maybe people would have greeted the first Strategic Petroleum Reserve release as a positive. But I think people recognize, they know it's there for emergencies. They know we've now had several announced releases from this in a row. 
And this is not a, a hurricane, although we did have a hurricane come through uh, Florida and the East Coast, and that was one of the factors that added to this. Um, it, it's it, quite literally going to the well too often. And uh, those who follow this a little bit more directly know that uh, back in the late Trump years, there was talk about refilling it at a low price, and Democrats and the media denounced it as some sort of giveaway to the uh, oil companies. Now, of course, we're depleting it, and of course, if we wanted to restock it, we would be doing it at a much higher price than it is. And I guess the other thing is just like people remember, people know. Okay, pandemic comes along, drastically reduces demand. Uh, the oil companies have all this oil and they don't know what to do with. And then COVID-19 pandemic ends, people go back to their normal habits. That brings demand back up again. But people think, like, okay, gas was always 2 to $3 a gallon. Why are things so high right now? Why? And it's not just why are they high. Why have they been high the entire year? I went back. The last time the national average was less than $3.50 was like the third week of February. So we've been paying for what we would think is like, wow, more than $3.50 a gallon. That's really expensive gas. For the entirety of the year, peaking at around $5, $6 a gallon, depending on where you are, or God help you if you're in California, you know, in mid-June. Have they come down a bit since then? Yeah, they came down for a bit. Then they went back up for a little bit. Now they're back down a little bit. But it is still, by historical standards, a very high price for gasoline. Now, I pointed out earlier in the year that we've shut down a bunch of oil refineries. So even, in fact, we're actually shipping some of our oil overseas to get it refined so it can go back to us in the form of gasoline. That's not very efficient. That makes everything more expensive. That's not a good way to get this operating. If we were wiser, we would have said, oh, my goodness, we, we've lost millions of gallons of uh, refining capacity per day over the pandemic, uh, during the pandemic, a little bit before. And in fact, there's another one in Texas that's going to shut down in a couple of months. Boy, we better create more of them. We better start expanding them as quick as we can. You're not going to be able to take the old ones and get them back online because they're all being uh, retrofitted to work as biofuel processing facilities. How's that for irony? So in the end, this is all because of our environmental policies. This is all because we basically say the administration decided early on, ah, oil, natural gas, that's the wave of the past. Solar, wind, that's the way of the future. Well, they can't make your car go. And that's where we are. And so I'm glad the oil and gas industry are saying, look, this is the situation. Don't blame us. Look at the administration and their policies they've enacted. That's when these problems started. Yeah. Less energy and it gets more expensive. And it's always fun, you know, when prices were ticking back up there. Ron Klain, quiet as a church mouse on Twitter. Now that they're coming back down again because of this, you know, kind of fake movement into the market with the with the SPR releases, always crowing all about it again. Uh, I don't think once we get to December and these numbers, I think almost inevitably start soaring again that he's going to be doing that again. But all he cares about is getting to uh, November 8th. Jim, they mentioned the Persian Gulf War. I I distinctly remember people being absolutely apoplectic leading up to the Gulf War. That gas, I think, was around like $1.80 a gallon. And so I realize things are more expensive now than they were 30-some years ago. But uh, imagine being upset that things were almost $2. eighty. I mean, look, that's really expensive by the standards of the gas station in Die Hard, which was what, in 80, <laughs> 90 cents a gallon? Uh, 74 or 77, depending on whether you were regular or unleaded. Because back then, of course, those meant two different things. All right. On to uh, our second good martini now. And the good aspect of this is that this is being reported just a couple of weeks before Election Day, and it's a story that is certainly not uh, likely to help uh, a darling candidate of the left. So kudos to Politico and specifically uh, the author here, Brittany Gibson, for uh, sharing this story. It relates to the amount of money that the campaign chairwoman for Stacey Abrams, both in 2018 
uh, and now uh, has made, the amount of money she's made as a lawyer as a result of lawsuits uh, filed by Stacey Abrams' group Fair Fight Action. And so here's a part of the story says, Allegra Lawrence Hardy, Abrams' close friend who chaired her gubernatorial campaign both in 2018 and her current bid to unseat Governor Brian Kemp as one of two named partners in a small firm of fewer than two dozen attorneys. The firm received $9.4 million from Abrams' group Fair Fight Action in 2019 and 2020, the last years for which federal tax filings are available. Lawrence Hardy declined to comment on how much her firm has collected from Fair Fight Action in 2021 and 2022, years in which Fair Fight Action versus Raffensberger, he's the Secretary of State, as you might remember, for which Lawrence Hardy was lead counsel, had most of its courtroom activity. These two go way back. Lawrence Hardy was a classmate of Abrams at Spelman College in Georgia in the early 90s. The pair also would each attend Yale Law School with Abrams graduating in 1999, three years after um, Allegra Lawrence Hardy. And so, uh, Jim, basically what's happening here is uh, Stacey Abrams and her Fair Fight Action Group is raising tons of money. They're filing lawsuits, which are going nowhere, and making one of Stacey Abrams' uh, closest confidants and campaign uh, officials filthy rich. So I don't know how illegal this is, but it's certainly sleazy. It certainly emits an odor. And one of the things that I can understand if listeners of this podcast like, ah, Stacey Abrams, why won't she just go away? And uh, I'm sick of hearing about her, et cetera, et cetera. She, she thought she was elected governor in 2018. And uh, then she denounced Trump for not conceding the election, et cetera, et cetera. But in a way, she's kind of fascinating because ordinarily, if you lose a race, um, you, you she lost close it was within 50,000 votes. And sometimes that can be a stepping stone. But I wonder if you look at her experience, look at Beto, you look at maybe a couple of these other, maybe Fetterman is going to join this category, depending on how Pennsylvania shakes out. Is it now almost better, depending on your true intention, to be a close loser that is beloved by the grassroots of the party than to actually get elected. And I guess you know, what, what my phrasing for this or my thinking for this would be, if you get elected, sooner or later you have to govern and you got to work with the state legislature and the state legislature may or may not get along with everything, go along with everything you want to do. You got to compromise, you got to negotiate. And at some point you, you accumulate a real record in office and you disappoint people. That's just part of life. That's just part of the reality of governing. Whereas if you come close, but don't win, you remain that ideal. You've never signed on to any bad compromises. You've never actually had to make any tough decisions. You can always say, ah, if I were there, I would have avoided that problem. I would have figured this all out. It's a little bit easier also to say nothing of being a martyr and, oh, the election was stolen from her, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and certainly, you know, we saw Beto run for president. A lot of people wondered if Stacey Abrams was going to run for president, having been the <clears throat> minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. We'll see how this year shakes out for her. But I've seen like a dozen books, including a business management book by her, including several works of fiction by her. Now, again, I shouldn't give anybody else grief for writing fiction. But you kind of think like Stacey Abrams has turned into this full spectrum celebrity in addition to being a candidate for governor again. And it's not looking great for her. But you also have set up this fact that she is now this phenomenal grassroots donor collector for the Democratic Party. And where's all that, that money going towards? Well, it's, it's allegedly it's going to fighting, you know, efforts to restrict the vote, et cetera. But you notice this very rarely up until like this story, very little really scrutiny of these organizations. They only have to file their paperwork once a year. Some groups, depending on how it's what kind of category it's in once every few years. People kind of look at it and say, well, what are they doing with all that money? And who's collecting all that money? And what kind of salaries are they paying? 
Uh, in other words, there's some evidence based on this story that Stacey Abrams is a grifter. And you start thinking about that. Like, this is all very good for Stacey Abrams. And a very fair question might be, is this good for Democrats nationally? Say nothing of like, you know, everybody who donated. Were they expecting to pay one law firm a ton of money to lose a case? Probably not. But hey, that's your problem, Democrats, not ours. No, exactly right. And let's not pretend that there aren't a lot of uh, folks on both sides of the oh, aisle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the right. You know, <laughs> yes, we've written a lot about groups that say, you know, write to us. And these poor little old ladies write their, you know, with their shaking hands, write their checks in. And then they take them and then they, you know, build, buy a townhouse or do really nice, fancy stuff. And then they'll run like one ad, like in late October when when everybody's running ads and it's absolutely. And then they'll say, oh, we helped elect like that candidate. No, you didn't. You had one commercial, eleven thirty. That doesn't. That, you didn't put them over the top, pal. That's you know. So this this goes on on both sides. But for this to be associated with Stacey Abrams might really damage her brand in Democratic Party circles. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't happen to a better person. Uh, uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, in passing there uh, the situation in Pennsylvania. Today is the one and only Fetterman Oz debate. Uh, I've noticed that the Fetterman camp is already saying this is really not John's best format, uh, even though he's going to have the closed captioning. And, and Jim, you talk about this a lot in the morning jolt today. I feel like Republicans have not done their best job of raising Fetterman expectations as opposed to kind of uh, having their their napkin tucked under the, the collar of their shirt waiting for him to, to stumble over his words. It's the same thing with Biden. Instead of uh, setting the bar high, they're setting it low. So all he has to do is the minimum to make the media say, see, everything's fine here. But uh, but we'll find out uh, how well he does. It's a big test tonight, I think. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I actually think I, I'd be surprised if people come away from this saying, oh, my God, Fetterman was terrible. I mean, look, maybe he will. Maybe he will stammer or struggle to get his words out or anything like that. And this um, part of this is the natural uh, lowering of expectations. Up until debate week, most campaigns are like, our candidate is a mastermind and a genius and the best communicator. And the other team is the other guy is an imbecile who drools on himself and barely get a sense out until debate week. And then all of a sudden, like, look, <laughs> this is not what our guy's best at. And the other guy, man, I'll give it to him. He's a good communicator. He's really good at that lecture, you know. Well, but in the case of, of Fetterman, that may actually be the case that we we are expecting him to have problems. If he doesn't have problems tonight, then okay, then you know, I think a lot of Pennsylvanians will say, "Huh, what was all that about?" The one thing I would also note, and I realize this is kind of turning to a bonus martini here. <laughs> so, you know, Fetterman. You watch videos, and I've watched a couple of videos of Fetterman appearances. C-SPAN has a bunch. Uh, he usually speaks for about 10 to 12 minutes, and I would say he looks pretty darn good. Occasionally some mistakes, little stuff. You can tell maybe the occasional awkward pause in a sentence, but then again, maybe I shouldn't be pointing any fingers at that. Um, at this kind of shatnery, I guess. The uh, But so generally, like, okay, that, that's not that bad. Um, now, again, maybe people will be uh, you know paying attention to it. And again, it's only 10 to 12 minutes that he's in front of an audience that love, they're saying, well, we love you, John. He's like, thank you. You know, it's the best possible circumstance for giving public remarks on a debate stage for an hour. Maybe he's not going to be so well. So we'll see how things go tonight. I don't think this is going to be decisive, but I do think it's going to be um, certainly higher stakes than usual. And I think the real danger for Fetterman is, again, they've waited. They've created these high expectations. People have been waiting to see him on, in these kind of circumstances. And because there's only one debate scheduled, if he has a bad one, he doesn't have another debate to undo the damage, you know, next week or something. Right, 
Right. So as we've said before, it's important for Oz to get Fetterman on the defensive, get him flustered and see how he responds in that situation, which is really kind of the, the best debate strategy, no matter what the circumstances are. That's kind of what you're trying to do. Get your message out, put your opponent on the defensive. So uh, we'll see how well Oz does that. Whatever else you say about Dr. Oz, he should be a fairly effective communicator. So we'll we'll see. All right, on to our final martini, uh, Jim. And as long as we're talking about uh, the people who are in la-la land when it comes to election denial, let's move from Stacey Abrams on to Hillary Clinton, who uh, did concede to Donald Trump and then spent the next four years explaining how he was an illegitimate president and it was the fault of Jim Comey and the Electoral College and women who just do whatever their husbands want them to and Russia, of course, uh, and there were several other uh, entities that she blamed. But Hillary Clinton is back. I don't know if this is uh, her trying to uh, build goodwill potentially towards a comeback. Dick Morris certainly thinks she's running again, which is probably your best proof that she's not. But uh, nonetheless, uh, she has decided to point out that, forget about the midterms, the right wing is trying to steal the next presidential election. Here is, unfortunately, a minute of Hillary Clinton explaining uh, this uh, absurdity. I'm here to highlight something that (laughs) is keeping me up at night. And I know this group really understands what I'm about to say. I know we're all focused on the 2022 midterm elections, and they are incredibly important. But we also have to look ahead because you know what? Our opponents certainly are. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. Just think, if that happens, The 2024 presidential election could be decided not by the popular vote or even by the anachronistic electoral college, but by state legislatures. So there you go, Jim. Uh, Talk about delegitimizing, which the left is constantly accusing the right of doing. She calls it the right-wing controlled Supreme Court, the anachronistic electoral college, Republicans stealing the election. Uh, You know, we just had Max Boot the other day saying that by voting for Republicans, uh, people would be destroying democracy. So um, I know I'm kind of crossing the streams here, but what do you make of uh, Hillary once again uh, accusing the right of stealing elections, which I thought, Jim, was uh, uh, a threat to our very way of life? Well, I was going to say, before we even kind of jump into what Hillary Clinton said, the Washington Post noticed a couple of days ago something that kind of a dog that isn't barking and although maybe I shouldn't use that comparison when talking about Hillary Clinton. Um, Neither Hillary Clinton nor Bill Clinton have been on the campaign trail for Democratic candidates. Now, you know, Bill Clinton left office 22 years ago. So that's all right. So I guess maybe he's, you know, kind of past his prime and all of that. They've noticed, you know, Joe Biden is not doing big uh, rallies with candidates. Barack Obama is scheduled to do a few. But they haven't asked Hillary Clinton. And she was the Democratic nominee, you know, six years ago. Now, obviously... Uh, she was getting up there in years then. I imagine maybe, you know, health and, and stamina and, you know, travel schedule. But really kind of, you know, there, I feel like there's been a changing of the guard because you don't, you know, also, by the way, notice you don't see Kamala Harris out on the stump with candidates. She's doing Democratic Party fundraisers and state party dinners and, and that kind of stuff. But you really don't see 
uh, candidates trying to go out and campaign. You see a little bit of talk about Bernie, right? So it's going to be curious about, um, I don't know if Democrats care about what she says anymore. I don't know if the general, I doubt the general public cares very much about what she says anymore. And I think Democrats as a whole may be sort of embarrassed by Hillary Clinton, in part because in the past she has made comments that insinuate or suggest or imply that Donald Trump had somehow stolen the 2016 election. And that's exactly the message they don't need to have as, you know, if they're trying to demonize or criticize Donald Trump for his actions after the 2020 election. Um, and also there's that question of like, how could you lose to this guy in the first place? Those of us with long memories who, who know just how central the Clintons were to the identity of the Democratic Party, really from 1992 to about 2016. It's kind of mind boggling what afterthoughts they have become. Uh, all of the expectation that Chelsea Clinton was being groomed for some sort of higher office has not panned out. I don't think, you know, based on the public profile of Chelsea Clinton, I think she isn't interested. I think she wants to do something else with her life and good for her for that. So you look at that, this is really the end of the Clinton political dynasty. And now in the end, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's become just another voice on the scene, largely tuned out and, you know, lost in the noise of the usual news cycle. Yeah, the poor Clinton's only 30 years at the top of the heap in uh, American <laughs> politics. What a, That really got shortchanged. Got shortchanged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's been 30 years since he got elected, oh the 1992 campaign. Yeah, get off our lawn, kids. But, uh, I mean, that was, uh, that was a kind of a seminal moment with Ross Perot. I mean, Saturday Night Live was funny back then with the three-way debates with Dana Carvey playing two different characters and... Uh, we didn't like the results that year. And as a result, we got the Clintons for 30 more years. But uh, it, You could probably say this for just about any two-term president, but I think it was Matthew Continetti who made the observation. Look at the state of the country and the mood of the country um, at the beginning, at the end of the Clinton years, beginning of Bush years, right? 99, 2000. And look at the state of the country at the end of the George W. Bush years. It's a very different place. Obviously, 9-11, obviously the Iraq War, Great Recession. I mean, a lot happened in those years. And he talked about the idea of that being a hinge presidency. And just as time goes by, I just kind of, you know, like, yeah, boy, that really does feel like a turning point, not necessarily for the better in a lot of ways. Uh, Clinton's good riddance, hopefully. Uh, Jim, we'll see what happens in the debate tonight and in the two weeks to come, two weeks from tonight, midterm election night. So rest up. Talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Tuesday, and please join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. You know, sometimes you can't depend on big media organizations to cover all of the important news of the day. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how this historic political divide we're in has Democrats pulling all sorts of last-minute stunts to get votes before the midterm elections. Download and subscribe to my daily podcast. I don't talk about every single story of the day, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.